Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Revelation. We'll be in chapter 1, and I'll read verses 4 through 8, if you would like to turn there in your Bibles and follow along while I read this aloud. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Thanks for having me back. If you've got your Bible, turn to Psalm 2. I was... um, Just a few weeks ago, it was a rarity for the spring for our family. We had nothing going on on a Saturday morning, and I found myself uh, just lounging and enjoying just a carefree Saturday morning. And if you've ever been there, it's like, well, what do we we waste our time kind of not doing? And just enjoying relaxation. And so I'm there on the couch and just flipping through. I'm in kind of the TV guide. Normally, we just default to sports and whatnot, but um, I come across this program that uh, just totally caught me off guard, and it was the coronation of King Charles. (laughs) Uh, And so I was like, well, I don't think I've ever seen a king coronated before, so let's watch that. And, you know, the time difference and whatnot, I think we were just getting the highlights, but uh, I may be like sparking all kinds of, uh, like we need to go back and watch The Crown again right now. And men, I'm so sorry for that. But um, nonetheless, we're watching it. And um, I, I, didn't, I don't think I had any idea. Not only did it kind of catch me off guard and by surprise, like I think I knew he was gonna be the king or was already the king, uh, just didn't piece together that this was gonna be on TV, that I was gonna you know, stumble upon it on this morning. And learn that, like, not only is he now the head of sort of England, Great Britain, he's also the head of like 14 other nations in the world. Uh, he is also the supreme governor of the Church of England. The supreme governor. I did not know. Do y'all have a supreme governor? Um, I didn't know that church office existed. But nonetheless, uh, this, this, like, traditional service that they walked through has been roughly the same for a thousand years. And uh, in many ways, I was fascinated, right, of all the pomp and the circumstance as like people are walking around in funny hats and parades and just everybody like clued in on uh, Charles and Camilla kind of doing their thing as like little kids walk around like holding the train of their robes and uh, I don't know if you've seen a picture of this, but dude looks like Cruella DeVille with that cape on and like a little, and I, in some ways I mean to diminish him, right? Um, because while I was fascinated at the same time, I was absolutely repulsed. Uh, not because I'm American, right? Not because I'm like America, but, um, but because as you look at it, right, you see how vain uh, and what a weird attempt it is to put something forward 
that, that's supposed to model this authority and this awe. And uh, if you've watched The Crown, then like you, you've already kind of emptied him of, of any capacity to do that. Um, and so I, I start with that because Psalm 2 is um, this psalm that was for the kings of Israel. And in hindsight, as we get to look back, I think we get to see more fully God's anointing of Jesus. And uh, if you were here a few weeks ago when I was teaching through Psalm 1, you already remember, hopefully, that Psalm 1 and 2 are believed to be an introduction to the entire book of Psalms. You may have remembered the singing. We don't have to do that this morning. Um, But maybe it would have been appropriate since we're in the Psalms. Nonetheless, uh, this Psalm is uh, really focusing in on the nations. So it's, it's taking a bigger scope of what God is trying to communicate, uh, whereas Psalm 1 was focusing in on uh, the way of the righteous and separating that from the way of the wicked. And uh, as I just recall sitting there and being both fascinated and repulsed, uh, I think what strikes me about Psalm 2, and as I look at the world that we live in today, is I just recognize we are anointing the wrong kings. And you may be like, well, I I mean, that's just like over there for them. Um, And yet I would say that politically and socially, uh, even spiritually, that we find ourselves going, I want to follow that that leader or that party or that influencer or that idea or that celebrity or that pastor who's written a lot of books. Like one of the things I loved about Tim Keller's ministry is that he submitted himself uh, to a group of men when he was called into account. They said, hey, Tim, we want to pull you in and we want to question you, that you have no authority on your own right. And yet, uh, Timothy Keller has written any number of books and, and any number of people have come along, like you may be one of them, I'm, I'm one of them that just went, I want to read that, I want to hear what he has to say. Uh, and yet in so many ways, specifically in our culture today, like we highlight and we celebrate, we serve, uh, we, we even find ourselves kind of like huddling into this little tribe that follows this guy or this lady and this voice. And admittedly, outside of Eden, until Christ returns, um, we're not going to have we're not going to have somebody who gets it right. And so we've got to be aware of the warnings of Psalm two, and not only how those impact our nation, but how they impact us individually. So Psalm two's got really four sections to it. Um, verses 1 through 3. Uh, if you're a note taker, I'm just going to use an acrostic of KISS, and we'll get there in a bit. But um, the, the verses 1 through 3, we're going to talk about knowledge of the world and uh, what the world is like. In verses 4 through 6, we're going to talk about the irresistibility of God, of His sovereignty, uh, of how He responds to the world. Verses 7 through 9, we're going to talk about the supremacy of the King. And in verses 10 through 12, Uh, We're going to talk about the submission of the nations. Because uh, some believe, some researchers, commentaries will will, uh, not only denote that this is about the kings of Israel, but they they will even 
go a step further and say that this psalm was used during coronation ceremonies, that there was like this responsive reading where the prophet or the priest or whoever is doing the anointing, whoever is setting aside um, this individual for this special service, it may be significant to, to remember or remind us that um, the word for king in the Old Testament is often Messiah, which means anointed one. And when we translate that down into the Greek, we get the word Christos. And when we translate that into the English, we get Christ. So Jesus Christ, Christ not his last name, um, we're, every time we denote Jesus Christ, we are saying King Jesus, that he is anointed for this special purpose, that we would serve and celebrate and take refuge in him. And yet in the nation of Israel, they would have this coronation ceremony where the priest or the prophet that's doing the anointing, like he, he starts to read. And then in verses seven through nine, the king would then respond. The one being anointed would respond and at the end, the whole congregation would, would sort of recite verses 10 through 12 together. So this is ingrained in the people's psyche. In much the same way of some of the songs that we sang when we introduced Psalm 1 of, of the Star-Spangled Banner and Deep in the Heart of Texas, if you're a native Texan, God bless you again. Um, and so whatever your alma mater fight song is, right? Like these are the things that were ingrained in the people that they would remember the authority and the awe of God's anointed one. And so let's start as we look in verse 1. It says, Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. And so when we think about the world, when, when we consider what the world is like, the, the psalmist tells us there's an inherent conflict that the world knows all too well. It, it knows its bondage and its brokenness, and in its bondage and brokenness, it resists submission to God. I mean, you just go down the list or... or take a look at what's in the news. Um, you see wars. You see corruption. Um, you see politics in all its worst forms on a worldwide level. Individually, you, you, you likely feel it yourself. I mean, the fact that you're wearing clothes is evidence of it. Like, nobody just woke up this morning and went, I'm good naked right? Like you know that sinfulness exists in the world, and so you cover. And you walk out the door, and you put on your best face, and sometimes you stare in the mirror, and you've got image or identity issues. Like we see that rampant throughout society today. We've got issues of, of sexuality and stewardship where like we look at even our very bodies and go like, how do I steward this thing? Knowing that Christ said that we were bought at a price. We are not our own. When we think about our resources and, and the things that we have, how often do we, do we go, God, how can I serve you with this? Rather than, like, I think I'm just going to do what's expedient. Or I think I'm just going to kind of look across the street and see what my neighbor did, and we're going to do some of those very same things. You think about um, the relationships that we have. And the bondage and brokenness of, of divorce, 
of like, I, I need to care for me. Um, or conflict that just goes unresolved um, because we, we so often lack courage to engage with those that we've hurt or those that have hurt us. And just, God, like it's just easier to avoid. And so a, a logical question is how, how do we then as believers respond to a world that conspires and plots? Like we know the world is like that. The world does worldly things. It should not surprise us. And I want to just give us three things. So first of all is, is um, sometimes the most appropriate response for us to a world that is broken and in bondage is to rebuke the world. Just like Jesus did to Herod as he went. Now, like, you tell that fox in Luke 13, as he begins to, like, he's not mincing words. He's not trying to make Herod out to be somebody he's not. He just addresses with truth because truth is loving and kind. That he rebukes the Pharisees as he calls them whitewashed tombs. So as we think about the kings that we anoint, sometimes they're political and sometimes they're spiritual. And yet, another way that we might respond is reflection. Because I've come across any number of individuals that, that just look at us and the testimony that we bear due to the way that we live our lives and the way that we spend our money and the way that we use our time. They just go, I mean, I, I love the idea of Jesus. I just have a really hard time with his followers. As they, they don't seem to believe it. And so they, they question uh, the hypocrisy that, that sometimes we exhibit. They question the, the insulation that sometimes we exhibit. Um, I, I recently watched uh, the Jesus Revolution movie, and I, I commend it to you. Certainly there are things to parse out and um, probably things that would help us be more discerning. And yet, this won't be too much of a spoiler if you haven't seen it, but um, in, in one of the opening scenes, one of the main characters... Uh, is in this guy's house, this pastor's house. And he begins to share about how he used to be an addict and about how he used to pursue all these things, like these things where the world plots and conspires against God's design. And he, he unpacks it for this pastor and he says, but I found Christ. And I've got more people just like me. And yet the doors to your church are closed to us. That in your um, holiness, in your righteousness, uh, in so many ways sometimes what we do is we turn in towards one another to sort of protect ourselves because we start to share these similar values in our faith and we fail to welcome others in. I mean, sometimes it's something as simple as uh, the way we engage uh, with those that, that walk in these doors, preferences that are given of, of styles of worship over um, just meeting people where they are. We get caught up in all these kinds of battles. And in this particular scene, uh, one of the, the elders or the deacons of the church says, uh, they don't, they're not wearing shoes. They're going to get the carpet dirty. 
And the pastor who's reflected, he goes, yes, we must save the carpet. Certainly, lastly, the, the response that we have to a world that conspires and plots, to some it's a rebuke, to others it's a reflection. To everyone, it's an invitation. Even to the most hardened, conspiratory, plotting, anti-God-hearted individual, that we'd be reminded that there is an invitation that was not only given uh, to the Syrophoenician woman, the Canaanite woman, as uh, Charles Boswell spoke uh, a couple, a few weeks ago, Matthew 15, 21 through 28. Hopefully you're here and you remember it. So you just recall the invitation that was given to her as Jesus recognized her faith, that we would extend that same kind of invitation to others. Whether it's right here in McKinney, Texas, or whether it's halfway across the world. knowing that if, if she is welcome in God's kingdom, if we are welcome in God's kingdom, is there anyone whose God's mercy doesn't reach? And so in all of that, like, you, you see that the world is predictable, um, that they conspire and plot in vain, that they band together against the Lord and against his anointed let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The world does worldly things. We rebel. Fortunately, we know that God's not indifferent towards his creation. He responds. And so the psalm continues, The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. He laughs and scoffs. Like, this is not the, hey, be nice. Hey, share with your sister kind of God that I think some of us have grown accustomed to. Um, where we, we have this God who is safe and who is nurturing and who is like just Daddy Abba God who you just climb up into his lap and he just cuddles with you for a while. Like it's hard for some of us to imagine a God who looks at the nations and laughs and scoffs at them, who is angry, who has terror and wrath because so often what happens with us is um, we forget that God is intolerant of sin. He doesn't enable it. He doesn't become a partner with it. He doesn't validate it. And in the same way, I would say, like, we might, we might find ourselves kind of going like, well, of course he doesn't tolerate sin. But we don't ever really look in the mirror and go, oh, you meant my sin. He doesn't tolerate my sin. I thought you meant their sin. And so what I like to call like sin creep, 
Like when you think about um, Genesis 4, 7, where, where God's engaging Cain, Cain's just brought this, this, this sacrifice to God with Abel, and God's not as pleased with Cain's sacrifice as he is with Abel's sacrifice, and God looks at Cain. He has this conversation with him, and he says, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do what is wrong, sin is crouching at the door. It desires to have you but you must rule over it. And I can't help but imagine that any number of us this week knew sin was crouching at the door and we just kind of cracked the door a little bit. We didn't let sin in all the way. We knew that if, as we were scrolling through and looking at some images and whatever, that it was just kind of like, well, I mean, I'm not clicking on anything. I'm not buying anything. And it's, it's real easy for us to like parse out things like pornography and go, that's sin. But like, what about those of you who like this week, if we were to go to your home for lunch today, you'd have to go hide any number of Amazon boxes. Because those things just piled up. Like, just me? embarrassing the number of like boxes that are just overflowing because I've got this consumer mentality. And you may be like, Bruce, I don't see that in the text. Like Amazon boxes aren't in there. And yet when we talk about the irresistibility of God, we have to understand that, that God's not just sort of like, well, I mean, if you don't steward your resources well all the time, like it's cool. Just buy that extra shirt. Just buy that outfit, that little trinket, whatever that gadget is. Yeah, you could use one more of those. I don't think we fathom just the scope of God. Much like, uh, this is random, but much like an earthworm doesn't fathom the complexity of all that is going around him. That, That we are so simplistic in our understanding sometimes that as we just kind of get in a rut, again, it's easy to, to call out the very blatant, obvious sin. And yet where we let sin creep in and just gradually take over, nobody just wakes up one day and goes, yeah, I, I, I wanted to become uh, somebody who embezzled money. Uh, somebody who stole from my job. But we find ourselves like as thieves of time. It's like, ah, oh, it's okay if I show up 15 minutes late. It's okay if I take a long lunch break. I mean, they're doing it, and so, like, I can do it too. And I don't mean to be ungracious or unmerciful or communicate that, like, God's constantly looking over our shoulder and being like, don't do that. As much as it is to to understand the irresistible sovereignty and righteousness of God. And so he laughs and he scoffs, and in his anger and terror and wrath, he rebukes. But then I think this psalm takes a turn here that should have been obvious to every king that Israel ever had. And it should be obvious to us. 
Verse 6. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. So we have the benefit of history, of looking back, and we know the kings of Israel were among the worst reflections of what the Messiah was supposed to be. Like from the get-go, right? Saul's selected. He's taller than everybody else. And they go to anoint him, and he's hiding. They anoint David. And that seems like it's going to be an amazing deal, right? Like, commentaries will tell you, like, this psalm is about David initially. And yet we see David and Bathsheba. We see David and Absalom. We see David and his daughter Tamar. Like, and that went south fast, David. We see Solomon in all of his extravagances. He just kind of continues to lavish on himself. And yet every king of Israel would have known this. Every person in Israel would have known this. And what they would have also known is that in 1 Samuel 8, Samuel's getting old. And he's now appointed his sons to kind of take his place. And all the elders of Israel go, Samuel, this isn't going to work out. Your sons are terrible. They can't take your place. Give us a king. And admittedly, his sons were terrible. But Samuel says, let me go talk to God about that. And what does God say? says, Samuel, don't worry about it. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me as their king. That they might have a king like other nations. They're rejecting me as their king. They're rejecting me, the God of the universe, who holds eternity in the palm of his hand, who moves the hearts of men, who hardens the hearts of men, who called you into this fellowship this morning to worship him, whose angels surround the throne all day long going, holy, 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 as we sang with them this morning. And yet, every single time a new king is appointed, everyone's celebrating, and there's a parade, and they throw that stupid Cruella de Vil cape on that dude, and they put a crown on his head, and they drag along kind of his, his extra wife because of his marital affair with somebody before, and they have him hold this just ridiculous little golden scepter-looking thing. How foolish! And we line up and down the streets and we cheer as this carriage goes by, this horse-drawn carriage. Even though the only people still using carriages are the Amish. Like, do you, do you see how the weight Of, of that decision to anoint a king that is not God 
had to be like this weird, awkward, like, I mean, yeah, we anointed another king, but he's not God. The conscience of the nation of Israel reciting Psalm 2 is a recognition that the existence of any other king but God himself is rebellion. So Saul goes up there and they're like, yeah, throw an asterisk on that one because he's not God. David goes up there, yeah, throw an asterisk on that one because he's not God. Solomon goes up there and is like, I don't know, this is kind of great. Like we've had peace for a while. He built that new temple, that thing's cool. He's not God. And again, it's real easy to see when Rehoboam and just go down the list. Those things just fall apart. And what would have been absolutely evident as Israel is basically wiped out and Judah's being dragged 800 miles in chains, naked and beaten by Babylon into exile. Where is this king that God appointed and installed on Zion? Like, would not all of God's people gone, what's next? Where is God? Because these, these kings that have come along with all the pomp and the circumstance and the tradition and everything that we have, man, they're not it. And yet, God and his plans and his purposes and his promises are irresistible. He laughs and scoffs. He rebukes. And so we see how empty Psalm 2 is when we apply it to earthly kings and yet we get to rejoice in the understanding of the fullness of who Christ is. In verse 7, I will pro proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your, your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Phrases like, you are my son, today I have become your father, um, they don't really translate for us well. I think of other uh, phrases like son of man and uh, firstborn over all creation, like those throw us way off. We get all kinds of spun up of like, wait, wait just a second, like does that mean that Jesus wasn't actually God's son until God anointed him? Like how does that work? And so in Hebrew culture, what is important for us to understand and, and not impose kind of our American or our English understandings of phrases onto things is that the king was, was like being adopted into God's family and giving him an inheritance and this sovereignty that he was positioned to act in God's place. So this idea of, of saying, you are my son and today I have become your father is not about a family heritage necessarily or about a change in uh, someone's humanity as much as it is a recognition that this person now holds all the authority, 
all the inheritance, all the power, all the influence that God brings to bear. It's kingship language. And yet, Psalm 2, in carrying the hope of a future king who could fulfill God's promises, is not realized until we start to read passages like Acts 13, where Paul says, We tell you the good news, what God promised our ancestors. He has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Paul is saying, Jesus is that king. And again, John in Revelation 19 through 15 talks about the future fulfillment as he says, coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. John, the disciple that Jesus loved, who walked with Jesus, who saw any possibility or opportunity for fault or failure, didn't ever see Jesus standing in the crowd and go hide. Didn't ever see Jesus go send one of his friends out to the front lines to die so that he could cover his sin with his friend's wife. Practice the discipline of poverty. As he says, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. This is a different kind of king. Not one of grand extravagance, who in some ways kind of just is experimenting with all of existence, so that his wisdom might grow, but who in his very nature is wisdom. Paul and John are saying, Jesus is king. And I want to make sure that we communicate both sides of the gospel here, because Christianity's claim is that Jesus is the promised king of God that establishes justice and will judge the world. And so citizens of Jesus' kingdom, we surrender ourselves, as we'll read here in just a second, to serve and celebrate and take refuge in Christ, but others that he does not compel. Their way leads them to struggle with all their might to make their own way, to put their desires over God's, to oppose God, to undermine God, and to build their own strength. And so the, the invitation isn't one of like, you can ride the fence. You can be a part of God's kingdom and a part of the world. The invitation is whole and utter submission to the king. Verse 10. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son, and he will be angry, and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment, and the bookend 
of Psalm 1 and 2, blessed are all who take refuge in him. And what does God desire when the psalmist states, be wise, be warned, serve with fear, celebrate with trembling, take refuge? I think all of those are summed up in the one Hebrew phrase, nashkubar. Nashkubar is kiss his son. And like modern sort of understandings of kissing someone in authority, like we have this weird attempt to portray it, uh, this idea of like kneeling down and kissing a, a king or a prince's hand or like a mob boss. Like if you're a Godfather fan, um, don't go watch it. But uh, like we, we have, this is our association. And yet we, we have a really hard time with affection. Because of sort of our hypersexualized culture, like we're not like the French, right? Like we're not touchy-feely at all. Like you even get close to me and I'm like, hey, you're, you're not touching me yet, but you're on your way. <laughs> Move over, right? Um, or it's like, gosh, you're touching me and that feels so extremely intimate. And yet there are two examples that are juxtaposed in kissing his son that I think just, again, highlight this idea of being wise and being warned, serving with fear, celebrating with trembling, and taking refuge in Christ. And the first one's found in Matthew 26. Judas approaches Jesus. He says, greetings, Rabbi. And he kisses him on the cheek. And right behind him are the soldiers that are there to arrest him, to beat him. It has all the motions, all the acts, all the surface level appearances, and yet none of the heart and none of the intent. And so in, in many ways this morning, I'm asking you, to reflect, is that what it's like for you to kiss his son? All the motions, all the surface level engagement, and none of the heart, none of the intent. The second example of kissing his son, which is just so markedly different, is found in Luke 7. It's the woman who anoints Jesus. The woman, not a priest or a prophet, believed to be a, a, a prostitute, who takes this expensive perfume, breaks the entire jar over Jesus' feet. As she is in the house of a Pharisee, an uninvited guest, like how incredibly awkward, how incredibly um, unaware she must have been, right? You don't just walk into somebody's house uninvited. 
And yet she has thrown caution and reverence and dignity and all pretense to the wind. There is no parade. There are no magic words to recite. We don't know that she says a single word. And yet for her to kiss his son... She weeps. She cleans his feet with her hair. And Jesus says she didn't stop kissing him from the time he had entered. She didn't stop kissing him from the time he had entered. Like, I just imagine it. What measure of need and desperation and humility must this woman have anointed our king with? Are you familiar at all with this kind of desperation and humility? The depth of it is staggering to me. Because so many times we walk in here and, um, and we worship. And we don't have to be emotional basket cases to worship, admittedly. But so many times, just like Judas, we just go through the motions We never considered, even from the moment that we woke up and our feet hit the floor, the kindness and mercy of God, knowing that we, we are among the nations who conspire and plot against His anointed one. And yet, in His abundant grace, He saved us. And so I want to close just by praying and asking us to meditate on two questions as I pray. What kind of king is Jesus? And how do you respond to him today? So I'm going to give you a second um, just to like center yourself. Uh, meditation is not a spiritual discipline you've exercised in a while. It's just going to be an awkward silence for a minute. Um, and just still your heart. And then I'll close this in prayer.
God, what kind of king are you? You are the king that rebukes and brings judgment to nations that practice corruption, to courts that use dishonest scales and pervert justice, to leaders who plot and conspire, to political parties that manipulate truth, that puppet religion for gain, that play games with the lives of the vulnerable. And at the same time, you are the king that is merciful and gentle. To the mother and father that struggle to care for their family as they experience uh, health concerns, as they um, don't know how they're going to keep the lights on. To the man the woman who knows that they're supposed to love you more but struggle even to go through religious observances. God, you're merciful and gentle. To the student that's just trying to not be alone, that's just doesn't want to stand out, just wants to go with the flow. God, you're the kind of king that laughs and scoffs as the nations conspire and plot. You're the kind of king that breaks the nations with a rod of iron and dashes them to pieces with pottery. The kind of king that calls us to repentance. And knowing that We don't have kings like you here on earth. That you have to be king. God, we find ourselves desperate and humble. Humiliated as we look at our own attempts and our own strength and our own busyness to give our lives meaning and purpose. God, would you remind us as we love you, as we worship you, God, that we would have the expectation that we would not just have these surface level, superficial engagements with you, but that we would recognize that in our midst is the King, the Lord Almighty, to be worshiped in praise, to be celebrated, to be served, the king that we can take refuge in. We pray these things in your holy, powerful, and able name. Amen.